G'day humans, welcome to the Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas and to Permission to Think, Uncomfortable Conversations is collaboration with the University of Technology Sydney where we have conversations that push the boundaries of academia with uh, guests who know a lot about the role of the university in public life and foster the kinds of conversations the universities ought to have. Uh, Professor Alan Davison, who's the Dean of uh, Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Technology Sydney, is doing a remarkable job trying to make UTS the place where independent thinkers can come and can debate and can be free from being pilloried and free from groupthink and have actual intellectual freedom and intellectual clarity and resurrect the sort of ancient notions of debate that universities are supposed to embody instead of being echo chambers for people who already agree with each other. And this is uh, kind of the hobby horse of our guest today, Professor Katie Barnett. Uh, she's a law professor and she's written about activist scholarship and her worries about activism entering the academy and contaminating what she regards as being the fundamental principles, especially of law, as in addition to being of academia. Robust debate, a tolerance of other people's opinions, but no tolerance of nonsense, uh, you know, a, a, a willingness to advocate for a position, but to respect the the authority of the court, the legitimacy of the court, the legitimacy of the rules of the game and of debate above your particular belief about what your political position or what your particular argument is. Uh, Katie started out at Melbourne Law School um, as a lecturer. She has, I won't go through her long and illustrious history, but uh, basically uh, she's a mother, she's lived in Australia and England, she's published a lot of academic publications in private law and uh, she's been a visiting scholar at uh, one of the Oxford colleges. She worked in the courts as a researcher and an associate to judges and also as a solicitor. So I hope you enjoy as much as I did this conversation with Dr Katie Barnett. What is activist scholarship, Katie? Okay, so when I use the word activist, I have a very particular kind of a meaning for it. Um, so I went to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary and it says that an activist means a person who uses or supports strong actions such as public protests in support Katie, or I mean, in opposition you should, to you, a controversial view. You should know by now that any debate that begins with uh, the dictionary definition of the term is X automatically loses the debate, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, so, that's yeah, you're true. you have to paraphrase it into human yeah, terms. Yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> um, so I guess what it means to me, I guess that's when I initially introduced this um, last year people would like to find what you mean by it so basically it's people who take a really strong point of view and anyone who argues against them is evil and it is justifiable in taking that strong point of view to take strong even violent actions against it so that's what i'd mm. say and the scholarship component means that you're doing this in the context of an academic institution or a class or a, like, what's the scope of this? Um, the scope of it is in both academic work, research and in class. So you're presenting a view where 
someone's not allowed to um, present a contrary view because that contrary view is actually in some way forbidden, evil, not allowed to be heard, um, just wrong. You're talking about how your uh, in in your piece about how your grandfather used to have arguments with you, and he sounds like quite a, a forceful person uh, with strong opinions, perhaps. Um, tell us about that. Um, so my grandfather was the kind of person who had, yes, extremely strong opinions, but if you dared to disagree with him, he would firstly shout at you, um, then he would tell you that you were stupid. And then if he, you still kept going, he was deaf. So he used to take out his hearing aid and put it on the table so oh, that he good. didn't have to hear him anymore. Mm. So, um, and then if you argued with him enough, he would say, oh, I, you know, I don't want to associate with you anymore. I, I mean, he, he always he, come I mean, back. He was social media before social media. He could mute you by taking out his hearing aid and yes. he could block you by just walking out of the room and saying, you never want to be part of the conversation. This, this was predating Twitter. Oh, well and truly, this is when I was a child. So he was social media <laughs> before social media existed. I love it. Literally muting people with a hearing aid. Um, yeah. yeah. And would, I assume that you found that to be an unconstructive form of argumentation. Um, extremely unconstructive. I can't think that I ever learned anything from that kind of an argument because you can't even, you can't even discuss anything um, when someone does that. It's just like they shut you down, everything you say is wrong, and if you dare argue with them, you risk being cut off. Do you think that that influenced your going into law? I mean, are you a law professor because you don't want that kind of style of disagreement? Um, I think it did. I am. I have always been argumentative. My dad likes to say that I began arguing with him before I could even speak. Um, I am not someone who tends to accept someone's big theory wholeheartedly. So my grandfather had particular political views and I would question them. And I've been like that since I was very, very small. And yeah, I, I suppose that's why I'm an academic. That's why I'm a lawyer, because I like arguing. I like discussing things too. Constructive argument mm. is actually a wonderful thing. It's funny that you have to add that caveat about constructive argument, because I too come from a family where argument was a positive thing, a constructive thing, an intellectual thing, uh, a pursuit, a discipline, a love of knowledge, a striving towards uh, argumentation for the for the purposes of trying to build on each other's case and poke holes in it and find good arguments. And the idea is that you're in a dance, which is leading to a high, to a better. Uh, theory than either of you could establish individually. Um, and hopefully one person sees the other person's side eventually, but if not, they have good reasons for, for not doing so. And I married someone whose, whose family examples of argumentation had been the opposite, had been um, corrosive examples of argumentation and obstinacy and people digging in their heels rather than trying to concede and find 
common ground. And I wonder if you think that there's something instinctive about our relationship to argumentation, our capacity for tolerating different ideas. Definitely. I think there's something intrinsic. So at one point I did a psychological test by the psychologist Karen Stenner, um, who's written something on the authoritarian dynamic. And I came out, unsurprisingly to anyone who knows me, as extremely open-minded. So basically I will talk to anyone. I will try most things once. I am extremely open-minded. I think other people, well, I know for sure other people are not so open-minded and they find anyone challenging their view to be a threat to their status. So to be a threat to their kind of whole identity and being, I don't usually feel like that about arguments. So in terms of my family arguing, we usually had constructive arguments where, um, you know, we'd all discuss things and we'd come to this better point of view. It was just once my grandfather got involved that it was unconstructive. So I guess I had both examples. It's fascinating that you say that some people feel instinctively that an argument is a threat to their being or that someone disagreeing with their ideas is a person who's attacking them as a human. Because more and more that interpretation is actually getting an intellect, getting intellectual legs uh, or so, so its practitioners think in the sense that we hear more and more about, um, sorry, I'm just being, dist- I'm just distracted by your paper rustling in the, in the background, Katie. Sorry, there's a lot of loud, There's a lot, lot, lot of loud papers that keep throwing me off my scent. Um, let me go back and, uh, find, uh, where that was. Um, because increasingly people seem to be making that case literally, like well, they will say that that there are acts of violence taking place on social media when someone disagrees with them, you know, or that hate speech becomes a form of violence. And of course, the scope of what constitutes hate speech could be, I don't know, simply saying that there are biological differences between men and women or something like that. Um, My existence is being erased if you disagree with me about, uh, you know, whether or not same-sex marriage should be legal or there's a literal genocide being committed against LGBTQI plus children if, uh, you know, people with penises aren't allowed into women's shelters if they identify as women or whatever the hot button, you know, culture war issue might be. Is there, are we, are you noticing that an expansion of the figurative sense of a threat to someone's being to a literal one? Oh, absolutely. So it is actually kind of, it's part of this kind of status thing. So I read this book by Will Storr called The Status Game. Mm. And he says different people seek status in different ways. So some people by kind of domination, but some people seek it by virtue. And a third group of people seek it by competence. I realised upon reading that and just looking at myself that the way in which I tend to seek status is by competence, by saying, well, I'm a very good arguer, therefore I'm a good lawyer. Some people, however, um, try and seek status in society by saying, I have the right beliefs. 
my beliefs are right and I am I have more virtue than others and I am contributing in a better way to society now this isn't just a left right thing it's not even simply related to current culture wars stuff I can think of instances in my own academic field where there were very violent disagreements from the kind of late 1980s onwards where people would call people who disagreed with them evil so this is pre-social media it's just kind of been exacerbated Mm. why do you think um i do think part of it is social media so because it's about social media for some people is about signaling whether they're part of a a particular group or not it produces a particular kind of tribalism and people don't want to be ostracized by their friends or um, have their job threatened or lose their job and in some ways i can see why people kind of feel sometimes that getting really harsh feedback is almost it is actually really upsetting so it's happened to me several times i guess i'm a a little bit inured to it now but um what the first time getting really getting really bad feedback yeah on things that i've written for the newspaper or things that i've written for this and that sometimes you get very very aggressive feedback um oh i can think of an example um which is an interesting one. So it was in lockdown in Melbourne and um, I've got cerebral palsy. So I went, I'd had Botox injections the day before that actually helps my muscles relax. And I'm being told I must go for a walk, but we had only one hour. So mum and I went for a walk. My mum lives down the road. And when we got to the bottom of the hill, I was really tired and I stopped and mum bought me a cup of coffee. And then the police came along and they said, move along. And some part of me was actually quite excited. I've been given a move along order, but um, I also wanted to argue with them. But my mother dragged me away. Um, But the interesting thing was the response that I got to that on social media. So some people actually said to me that I was making up my disability, that I was falsifying it, that I'd made the whole story up. Hmm. It was quite extraordinary. Um, Again, so I suppose the attitude I've taken to this kind of stuff is, it says more about those people than it says about me. Like they can say, oh, you're not really disabled or you're not really this or you're not really that. I know what the truth is. Um, it, it doesn't actually change the truth of what happened. No. But I think part of it is related to this idea of social proof. So where our views are uncertain, you know, where things are not clear, the way in which we try and um, get certainty is to seek social proof, to try and persuade other people 
that what we think is true and therefore the more other people who think it's true the more it must be so so that's why people kind of go around seeking social proof and there's actually been psychologists who documented this with cults right right so cult members um, seek social proof by trying to go out and convert other people um, so they infiltrated a cult and uh, that's what they found um, social media I think has kind of exacerbated that aspect of social proof hmm. so everybody feels uncertain they don't like that feeling of uncertainty I suppose I don't mind feeling uncertain I know mm. that I don't know everything. I know that there's a lot of things which are unclear. I'm a lawyer. Everything's shades of grey to me. Mm. But um, some people really hate it. And so in order to kind of make themselves feel better, they must persuade other people to reflect their view back at them. And in that way, it's like their views are confirmed. Interesting. And so what, how are you seeing that come out in the academy? Where are you seeing this, this quest for certainty and the sort of righteous activism spill out? Can you give examples? Oh, let me think. I mean, obviously, some of the things you've mentioned already. Um, so uh, the whole kind of gender wars stuff, that's not something I'm personally involved in, but it's something where... The academy has certainly split into polarised camps. One Another area with which I've had a long involvement, actually, is um, interests in things like Indigenous activism and things like that. So I was involved in that back in the 1990s, but I actually got out of activism because... The way in which people behave when they're activists, it seemed to me, was not compatible with getting to a compromise solution, right? You're not always going to get everything you want. But if someone's an activist, it's like we must get everything we want. If anyone disagrees with us, they're evil. And... Um, and then some of the people, I got the feeling, so I remember I was involved in a native title activism group, and one of the girls there said, I've never met an Aboriginal person, but what I think should happen is. <laughs> and I thought, what are you doing here? Mm. Okay. I don't think you are actually in this to help people. I think you are in this, whether you admit it or not, for other reasons. You're in this to show other people that you're a good person. You're in this to make yourself feel better. You're in this to signal certain things. But um, if you haven't actually spoken to any Indigenous people, how can you know what they want? And then there were some other people who... They said to me, oh, are you also in this activist group and that activist group and that activist group? And I said, no, I'm in this particular one because it has meaning to me because of the students I taught and because I am a lawyer. And they were like, oh, why aren't you in all these others? It was like, mm. it was actually... Like collecting baseball cards. 
Yeah, pretty much. And it was more, it seemed to me, it was more about them, about them projecting a certain image of themselves outwards that it doesn't go for all of them. So I'd say, you know, 40 to 50% of people were more interested in looking good, looking like a good person and in policing other people. And then... 50 to 60% of the people involved were genuinely good people who wanted to help, right? Mm. So, but I guess what disturbed me was there was this component which was more about I need to signal that I'm good and close down anyone who disagrees. Right. And since then, I have to say um, I've been a bit suspicious. It is interesting. So the... I mean, part of the problem here is also the drift of uh, the academy towards one political side uh, rather than another. I mean, there has been a a marked decrease in the number of people who identify as conservatives in institutions. Um, that may not, I mean, why, is that necessarily a bad thing? From my point of view, I think it is. And I'll explain why. So I am kind of centrist left. I'm very much what one would expect of a university lecturer. But as I said, I'm very open-minded and I have this very broad group of friends. I have friends from every single part of the political spectrum. And I have actually learnt a lot from speaking to people with different political or other views to me. And I think we're all the poorer if we don't speak to people who are different. You don't have to agree, but you can kind of learn more of what other people are thinking about. Moreover, um, several of people who are more on the conservative side said that they became really angry at university. They felt like their particular views were not reflected at all. So some of them quit, some of them lied, uh, I guess not lied, but misrepresented their views in assessment so that they'd still get good marks, but felt really resentful. And now they say, I'd like to close the academy down. So if you have an academy which isn't actually reflective of the full spectrum of views in society, in my view, you risk opening yourself up to that. You risk alienating um, 40 to 50% of the population. Who I mean, I suppose, agree with you. I suppose only, Katie, if you combine your partisanship with activism, right? I mean, yes. it, you could imagine, yeah, there's nothing necessarily, like, you know, people will often... Yeah say, of, uh, of journalists or the media, that the media is le- has a left-wing bias. Uh, conservatives will complain about that. I mean, it is true that the kinds of people who find themselves drawn to journalism yeah. are curious-minded people, and we tend to cluster less on the rigidly conservative, uh, you know, small-c mm. conservative. We're, we're more adventurous, explorer, explorative, open-minded people, and those people tend to cluster more on the political left. However, that shouldn't be a problem in my point of view as long as you are fair. 
Yes. <laughs> right? So if there was, you know, so, if, was, if, academic, if academia was, was left-wing but fair. Yes. And it, same criticism could be said of the of media. People getting marked down for expressing a different view. So what I say to my students in my first class is, I don't mind if you have a different view to me. In fact, I encourage it. Please bring up different views with me because I won't learn otherwise. Um, I have my views and students will pretty quickly work out what they are. I, I can't stop having those views. But the important thing is that I'm able to step back from them and treat students fairly when they disagree. As long as they justify their argument, I, I don't actually care as they, if justify it properly according to precedent and legal means of reasoning. I don't care that they disagree with me. So in that sense, it, if, if people behave like that, it doesn't matter if people are more left-wing or whatever, mm. because I think you're right. I mean, there's a reason why I've gone into the career that I have. Um, yeah. Finish that thought. Why? Um, I suppose because I am the kind of person who asks questions and I am the kind of person who is open to all kinds of things. I've researched everything from contract damages to animal law to um, Roman law, you, you name it. And it wasn't necessarily something that fitted well with practice. So I do remember when <laughs> I was young, um, a law firm partner saying to me, well, your mindset is not suited towards a big firm. And I think he was right. <laughs> mm, interesting. You're not conformist enough, Katie. No, I'm not. <laughs> but I'm not conformist enough for anywhere. Yeah. But... But that's what academia is supposed to be for. For, yeah. yes. Yeah. So um, advocacy is also fine. So in some of my pieces, I will argue for a – well, in fact, most of them – I will argue for a particular point of view. I'm trying to tell people why I think what I think. But the important thing about advocacy is, speaking as a lawyer, is that when you're an advocate, you have to represent not only your own side, but also note to the judge anything that's on the other side. Um, you're, you actually have a duty to the court as an ethical duty above and beyond what your duty to your client is to tell the judge about anything that doesn't go your way, right? So part of being an advocate is to say, well, I think the answer is this, but I just need to note that there are actually these other points of view and here they are. And in so doing, you make yourself, I think, more trustworthy. So I was a trial judge's associate for almost three years and so I got to watch a lot of barristers and people who present things really fairly, who admitted when something went against them or things like that, they're actually, you can trust them all. I suppose, how would I get people to think about that? Think about 
a person whose view you really, really, really are likely to disagree with really strongly. How would you feel reading a very partisan article by that person? Would you trust it? Hmm. I don't think about how you would feel if you read someone that you agreed, but how would you feel if you read an article by someone very partisan with whom you thoroughly disagree, who never raises the other side? You're not going to trust it, are you? Such people, I think, are speaking to the converted. They're telling the rest of the tribe that they're part of the tribe. They're not actually, um, they're not actually seeking knowledge. They're not actually um, trying to further knowledge, in my view. It's interesting to hear you say that they're, you know, when you're advocating as a lawyer, you have a duty to the court more that that trumps your duty to your client or your duty to making your case. It reminds me a little bit of the, there's a political analog to this, which is that you have to, you have to sort of agree to the rules of the game. And it may be even a conversational kind of analogy that where like, it's not just about, you know, there are, there are several levels on which we're competing with each other. When, if you're on a sports field, then obviously you want to win the game. But once you start cheating, or, you know, not playing by the rules, then you're playing a completely different game. You're playing a meta game of stepping outside of the game. And Mm. in a sense, you know, the objections to January 6th in the United States and to Donald Mm. Trump's questioning of the election have, I think it's a mistake when Trump supporters uh, equivocate about those and put them on the same level as, for example, the transgressions of, uh, oh, what about Hillary Clinton taking money from so-and-so or something like that? which which may all be part of the normal political tussle like mm. to then quest to question the actual the 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 mm. functioning of democracy is to step off the court and to start i mean someone i think i think it was Matt Taibbi who said that during the the presidential debates between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton Hillary would spend if you compared it to a boxing match Hillary would spend hours tying up her gloves perfectly and making sure that her boxing shorts were on and then they'd step in the ring and Donald Trump would pick up a chair and whack her over the head like which is not mm. the rules of boxing you're not allowed to do that but he found that very effective and similarly conversationally as well you know having having arguments within the context of a constructive argument is one thing stepping outside of the argument and trying to get the person fired or deplatformed or uh, excluded from polite society because they were engaged in that argument or because they were throwing around those ideas is for me a little bit like having more of a fealty towards your advocacy than to the court. Yes, it is. So it's, and I think once you get into violence, I should emphasise that this is something that we see on both the right and the left. So both the Mm. left loves to accuse the right of it, the right loves to accuse the left of it. I've seen it on both sides, this point where it's like, well, we're under threat, so we have to take strong action up to and including, you know, violence like the whole... um, storming the White House um, thing that happened when Trump's election did not happen. Once you start to do that, I think you're in really dangerous territory. I think we do have rules of engagement for a reason. These reasons are reasons of civility, 
democracy, that kind of thing. Once you're starting to get into that, um, I do worry that we're going to lose something. Mm. So, um, yeah, I suppose as academics, we just have to be careful that we're not, we don't, we don't lose the trust of people. Because one thing I guess I have been seeing, particularly actually since lockdowns and COVID, is more distrust on a partisan basis of, well, I don't trust experts anymore because, and it, like I've seen it on both sides, I don't trust this expert, I don't trust that that mm. expert, whatever. But once you start getting into activism, once you start getting highly partisan, then I think you do actually lose the trust of at least some people in society, not mm. the people on your tribe, you're talking to them, but people who are in the middle or people who are on the other side, you actually lose their trust. So that's one reason why I think it's dangerous. I also think it's dangerous because, um, yes, I think it impedes students from learning. If they're scared to raise something because their lecturer is going to publicly humiliate them, then they're not going to learn. I actually had a lecturer in first year who was like that. If you said anything, he disagreed with you. Um, he would just totally annihilate you in front of the whole class. I don't think I learned anything in that class. Mm. It's interesting. So, I mean, I'm trying yeah. to, I'm just casting through my mind of at university, the kinds of things that were taboo to question. There was certainly, I mean, I think when I was there, it, there was sexism was sexism 20 years ago was today's racism, uh, in the sense of mm. if you, you know, what was true, it might be, what might be taboo today would be to say something like, oh, why do we do uh, acknowledgements of country, uh, mm. you know, before meeting or, uh, is reconciliation still really the goal? I thought, you know, equality and, you know, colorblindness was the goal and, uh, or something like that. Mm. Or, you know, do we need diversity, equity and inclusion mandates? Uh, mm. that could be considered, yeah, that would get you hounded out of most, uh, university social studies, um, classes. But yes. when I was there, it was, it would have been saying something like that women are more interested in certain, certain things than men are. And men are more interested in, yeah. uh, in yep. sciencey things and women are more interested in touchy feely things because it was, uh, the aggressive uh, dogma was that there was no difference between men and women, that that was all culturally mm. constructed. What are the, can you think of any other things today? I mean, you touched on indigenous stuff, just simply because a lot of people won't be at institutions right now, so they don't know what the contours of these conversations so are. I'm trying to think of issues, again, racism. So racism is a massive one. Yeah, um, colonialism probably. Colonialism, yeah. like perceptions the, of re religious discrimination. Um, so if you criticise this, you're 
I don't know. Anti-Semitic, Islamophobic. Oh, right. I see. Yes. Criticism of Israel is, is, is anti-Semitic. Semitic. Yeah. Um, Pointing out the well, failings of uh, many Muslim theocracies in their treatment of women and gays is Islamophobic. Yes, exactly. That's Islamophobic. Um, then I'm trying to think what other kind of issues are there. Yeah, so the feminism one is still one. So I had an incident in one of my classes where we were discussing a case where a man assaulted a woman who got into his car. So he offered her a lift and then he assaulted her. And one of the a male students said, oh, wasn't it her fault for getting in the car? And the class went absolutely bananas, right? Mm. Um, people were kind of shouting at him, saying, you're sexist, you're disgusting. And I said, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Stop. So then I said to the student, okay, you think that in some way it's the woman's fault for getting into the car? Yes. I said, okay, what if it was a woman driving and she did that to a man? And he looked kind of shocked and said, well, that wouldn't be the man's fault. Hmm. And I said, what if it was a man doing it to a man? And he was like, oh, well, oh. And then I said, what if it's a man doing it to a child? And he said, well, the child didn't agree to that by getting into a car. I said, uh-huh. Mm. So what, what we're getting to here is a fundamental principle that by getting into a car, you don't agree to be assaulted by someone. And it doesn't actually matter if it's a man doing it to a woman, a man doing it to a man, woman to woman, man to woman we have a fundamental principle, which is a kind of rule of law principle that just by getting into a car, even if you don't know the person, it's not okay to just grab someone. No, but he presumably and wasn't he was saying like, that, that that it made it okay because the woman got in the car. No. He's it, like, I'm you're not, also reminding he me. He kind of, of seemed to think it was a bit of like, he said, wasn't she a bit foolish to do that? And so I wanted to kind of dig down on that and I said well, would you blame a man and he was like well no I said okay so and then at the end of it he said oh I see the fundamental thing is people just shouldn't grab someone like that in a car and I said of course yeah. but, but wait is that what he's saying because like I mean isn't that I don't think the fund I don't think the rule needs to be gender agnostic in that case the rule could hmm. be men are horny pigs in a way that women aren't and therefore yeah. don't if you're a, if you're a person who is less physically strong than a male don't then a good rule of thumb a good heuristic is not to put yourself in an enclosed space with a male who can take you wherever yeah. they want to yeah. and that could be a true claim about the universe and it could also be yes. true that men shouldn't rape people yes so I said to him, look, it's kind of like this. Would I get into a car with a man who was much larger than me, whom I didn't know? Would I as a woman? No, I wouldn't as a matter of common sense. But the question is whether the law should not give her a remedy for that because of this. And I 
think the answer to that is no. So there's a difference between the kind of reality of, no, I probably wouldn't do that as a matter of common sense. I might have done when I was younger, though, because I was more foolhardy and I didn't Mm. have as much idea of my I mean, own vulnerability. It is, and, and it is one frustration of law enforcement at the moment that it's hard to articulate that to young women because of the precise objection that that guy in your class got. I mean, there was a, I remember a specific case actually where a woman was sexually assaulted. I think it was in Queensland. This was within the past couple of years, maybe during the pandemic. And the the cop came out and was giving a press conference and said, I do just, I just want to remind, uh, you know, young women that that's a dangerous part of town and not to walk through the park, you know, and just to keep your wits yeah. about you try to see if you can have a buddy and, you know, always text people and be safe. And he got absolutely hounded. The Queensland police had to apologize. Why, why isn't he saying that young men shouldn't be assault, sexually assaulting young women instead of telling young women that they should avoid being sexually assaulted? Uh, you know, he's blaming the victim. Um, it's tricky. He wasn't blaming the victim. Yeah. Like, is there Just any saying. space anymore to, to, to articulate uh, caution without it being read in the most ungenerous possible light? I think that... that word ungenerous really gets to something. Social media, particularly something like Twitter, leads to a lack of generosity. Like people leap on things and assess it in the least generous light. If you said that women should take care walking through a park, clearly you believe it's okay for men to go around raping people Mm. and clearly you're a sexist pig who must grovel and apologise. Or if you, I mean, you can kind of swing it the other way politically. It it doesn't actually matter. Clearly you just are prejudiced against men and blah, 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 blah people kind of taking statements in the most ungenerous way possible and then kind of piling on. I think some people get pleasure from that. They get pleasure from telling someone off. They get pleasure from trying to cancel someone, Mm. I suppose. It's not something I've ever felt personally. I don't operate like that for whatever reason. Um, when you say cancel, I Katie, I just want to put some, get, let's get a little bit specific about what we're talking about there, because there's a school of, there's an argument at the moment that goes that the cancel culture is a boogeyman invented by right-wingers and regressives who want to be able to say hurtful things without consequence. Um, that what's yeah. actually going on is that people are pushing back more and people are Uh, redefining the contours of what is and isn't acceptable public behaviour. And we've always had cancel culture. You know, you can't go around calling people the N-word and you haven't been able to for some decades. Uh, And you would rightly be, quote unquote, cancelled, excluded from polite society, not invited to parties anymore, you know, potentially lose your job if if you were doing that. And so now we're just redefining what's okay and what's not okay. And cancel culture is just what people who want to continue being offensive, hurtful, boorish and hateful call being called out on it. What do you say to that? I would say to that, firstly, I think sometimes people don't mean to be boorish, offensive 
and hurtful. Sometimes they're just flippant. Sometimes they don't think through what the ramifications of what they say. Sometimes it's kind of disproportionate. Like someone says a flippant joke and because now social media, everyone can see it, they get absolutely caned. Whereas in the past, it might be some people said, oh, mate, that's a bit too much. But also I would point out that being inundated by hate mail, regardless of whether you're left wing or right wing, I've known people on both sides who have been, is really unpleasant. Having people ring up and ask for you to be sacked is incredibly unpleasant. Worrying that you're going to lose your job is actually awful. And then I've spoken to people who have lost their jobs. It destroyed them because I suppose I was brought up in a kind of old-fashioned labour way. And what one has to recognise is that someone's employment and someone's job is really important to them. So taking that away from them is actually a really... um, It's actually a really profound way of wounding someone Mm. and often what happens too is someone loses their friends they might lose money on legal action they might be ostracized they it's not just so i don't buy the argument that there's no cancel culture of course there has always been a cancel culture right Mm. i totally accept that it's just that perhaps in the past it might be the people in the next village wielding pitchforks, whereas now it's a Twitter mob descending Mm. on you saying, you know, you're unacceptable. But as a remedies lawyer, I think we have to be really, really careful with that. Part of the reason why we have the law is to stop people taking the law into their own hands. Yeah. Because when people do that... They can actually, you know, string people up, lynch people, become violent, um, things like that. It's actually something that we want to be very careful about unleashing. It's not saying that someone can't be sacked for doing something inappropriate, right? So there was a case some years back where a police officer was head of the ethics department. I can't remember what state but he was masquerading as someone else on social media and being racist, sexist, homophobic, pretty disgusting, right? Obviously, well, in the end, it was decided he couldn't keep his job because you can't be head of the ethics department and do that kind of stuff. Right. But the important thing is that a procedure was followed isn't just everyone piling on him going, he should be sacked right now. It was, okay, your role is this, this is this, okay, legally speaking. We have the law in part, I think, to take the heat out of debate. Like if you've been to court, it's actually most non-lawyers are pretty sad. It's a bit boring. My children, definitely sad, (laughs) boring. But that's the whole point, right? The whole point 
is to take the heat out, to take out that desire to hurt other people or to destroy them or whatever. So we have processes in place to make sure decisions are fair, that the ramifications are not disproportionate or... So, for example, there was a case the other day involving a Monash University lecturer who used the N-word in an academic context, and it seemed to be for some kind of ped pedagogical reason, right? Mm -hmm. um, I guess you can't just pile on him and say, he is totally wrong for using that word. There was some reason behind it. There was a pedagogical reason. He was reading out something or he was referring to something. It wasn't just, I'm going to be offensive and hurt any persons of colour in my class. It actually had reasoning behind it. Um, it turned out his wife was African. He had no intention of hurting any, um, mm. any people. Well, yeah, of any I mean, are you, uh, the, the fundamental question for me in the case of that word or any word that's a slur is were you using it to refer to people or were you using it to refer to the word? Yeah. And yeah, so that's the whole thing. If you're using it to refer to students, by goodness, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's a clear difference. I mean, I think everyone can understand. We just pretend not to understand the difference between talking about a word and then using that word to refer to things outside of the word, <laughs> out in the real yeah, world, exactly. out there. You know, if you if you call someone uh, a faggot who's and you shout out them walking down the street, we all know that that's different than saying the word faggot's a terrible word that you shouldn't call people like that. People. Yeah, yeah. The, the fact that it's the same mouth sounds is does not make it the same thing. Or even this piece of literature mentions the word, you know, insert word here. Um, yeah. If you're, and you're discussing that and perhaps discussing the impact of it, that's actually got a pedagogical and learning purpose. How does that make you feel? What is the point of that? It's actually different to calling someone that. And yeah. so what was the upshot of that, of that case? Um, the university found that the lecturer had not contravened any code of conduct, actually. Mm. So, I'll give that a few years um, and we'll see whether or not that interpretation continues. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see which way are we going to go. Because one thing I do worry about, I suppose, is that we're going to polarise further and further, that people are not going to be comfortable speaking to people who have different views from them we might go more far left and then have a far right backlash or the other way around. I suppose I just worry about when you have extreme and polarised people involved, um, it's dangerous for society. Mm. I also think there's a an important difference when we're talking about can cancel culture between responding to someone's offensive, well, firstly, is what they're saying offensive because they're making an argument or are they just being a dick? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, is there an, yeah, are yeah, they actually, totally. are they making a point? Are they trying to make a point that you disagree with? And it might be a horrible point. It might be like all Jews should be gassed and killed. Yeah. Right. But that's still an argument. <laughs> it is still a point, right? It's not simply yeah. 
Because hate speech to me, I suppose that is hate speech by any broad measure of the of the term. But the kind of speech that you you could legitimately be summarily dismissed for and excluded from public society and sent out onto the ice floe to die a horrid death without due process would be instances of vilifying and uh, attacking and dehumanizing individual human beings. To make an argument, I think the response, the correct response to a terrible, hateful argument is to answer that argument with a counter argument. And I mean, this was a point that was pointed out to me by Peter Singer, who was saying like, this is the difference with cancel culture at the moment, that you know, you may think that what I'm saying is offensive. The remedy to that is to is to argue against it. Uh, yeah, but if yeah. your if your remedy to it is to disengage and say you're not going to talk to me at all or explain why what I'm saying is wrong or yeah. offensive, and you're simply going to try to destroy me, where does that end up leading exactly collectively? Yeah. It's it's no. I was actually good. thinking of Singer when you, because um, he got into that issue. Um, regarding utilitarian arguments and um, disabled people. Like, I'm a disabled person. Mm, mm. I can deal with the fact that someone has suggested that view. Yeah. It's like... And just to clarify for people who don't don't know it, he got into trouble initially in the 90s with the religious right, with the Christian right, because he's written about... he's, He's a utilitarian, a consequentialist, and has talked about abortion and euthanasia and these provocative things, including infanticide. Uh, you know, he thinks that on balance you should be able to not only terminate pregnancies up until the point of birth, but probably within the first few months of a child's life, that uh, it should be a woman's right to kill the child. These are all very kind of outside-the-box things. And one of his one of the things that he was getting pilloried for was, I think, the yeah, the claim that that in the case of severely handicapped people, so he's talking about people, for example, with no brain where it's just a, uh, a human being who's kept alive by life support and there's no, there's no sentience, there's no conscious life. There's, these are real examples of, of real people who get kept alive de- for decades, sometimes to the horrendous trauma of their family members um, because they are not a person in any meaningful sense of the word. They're a, a shell and his argument is that it's ridiculous to keep that thing that has no conscious life alive because it's a member of the species Homo sapiens and to display such yeah. cruel disregard for other primates or, and mammals and so on and keep them in factory farms and so on when they have much higher capacity to experience pain than the brainless, lifeless uh, body on, uh, you know, that's being kept alive artificially in a hospital. And then that extended to, yeah. then there are boundary cases where, you know, okay, well, what if the, what if the person has some form of conscious flickering that's going on in this, in the brainstem or something like mm. that? And you get to all of these thorny issues of, well, when would it be okay to extinguish a human life and what mm. level of, of disability would be justified? He has never suggested that people living with disabilities should be killed or something, you know, through some eugenic something, kind of... But- uh, argument, no. but he was portrayed as being obviously people who oppose abortion and who are right to life, sanctity of life, as in the nineties 
had a field day with him. And what he said to me was interesting, Katie. He said that controversy went away as the religious right sort of went off and kind of got bored of him. And it's actually in the past 10 years that he started enduring more and more uh, Mm. on-campus, you know, cancellations and riots and things when he attends to speak. And that's coming now from the left, not from the religious right. That's coming from social justice quarters. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, I felt that what happened there was unfair also. I suppose as an animal law person, I'm familiar with his work. Um, certainly, I don't have any issues with him raising questions like that. I don't, you know, someone was kind of saying, well, if you knew what it was like to be disabled, you would feel erased. And I said... <laughs> I've had cerebral palsy since birth. Mm. Uh, no one's trying to erase me. He's just asking a question. And it happens that I would draw the line possibly differently for various reasons, but I can have a civil discussion with him about why that is. Um, I suppose that's that's what worries me, that we can't... We don't seem to be able to have a civil disagreement so much anymore and ultimately it's kind of deleterious to academic freedom Mm. which means that we see less and less less and less development of ideas so yeah yeah and i mean uh, coming back to what i was saying about argumentation, building on the other person's idea to reach a, a kind of better argument than either of either of the interlocutors had to begin with. Mm. You know, part of what is good about universities is supposed to be that the exchange of ideas and the pushback and the wrestling yeah. it, it leads to something better. And you don't really know your own, I mean, it's the old adage, isn't it? That, you, you know, if you don't know your opponent's argument, then you also don't know your own. You, you, you're not yes, very, correct. you know, you build a better and more robust version of your own social justice argument or, uh, you know, whatever. socially conservative argument or whatever it might be by bumping into yeah. arguments that, that you disagree with. Agree with. So I have a colleague at the University of Sydney and we basically have never really agreed about contract damages. Okay, an issue which a very small proportion of people in the world care about. We've had this ongoing academic discussion for years where I'll write something, he'll push back. He'll write something, I'll push back. And we both actually really enjoy it and find it productive because he's made me think of things that I've never thought of before and he says I've made him think of things that he's never thought of before and Mm. both our work has become better and more nuanced and actually sharper as a result. So it's it's a very friendly thing. I'm waiting for his next salvo. <laughs> Excellent. But, um, yeah, <laughs> I know it's coming. Um, <laughs> I should hope but, so. Um, yeah, well, I actually do hope so. I'm looking forward to seeing what it is yeah. because then my own work can be improved because he'll see something that I didn't see. Katie. And... I've learned a lot through talking to him. So, um, yeah, it is that whole thing of actually 
advocating for a point of view and kind of talking to other people about why what you believe makes your work better. It actually makes it, it means I can't be sloppy. I know I'm, I know he'll be on to me <laughs> if I <laughs> got to check everything and likewise. But it also means that I think my work is more rounded because he made me think of certain things that I'd never thought about before. Mm. Katie, so, do you get any pushback for holding this kind of attitude towards free speech? Yes. <laughs> Yes, I do. So, um, I mean, I think I've been attacked on Twitter several times, uh, been told that I don't deserve to be made a professor, um, be told that I punch down against minorities, um, that I'm generally pretty evil. But, I mean, again, I just have to sit back and think this says more about other people than it says about me. If we get back to what I was saying at the start of our conversation, they're concerned about social proof and they're kind of concerned to signal to other people. It's not really about me at all. It's about them and their own insecurities and their own uncertainties. So I just kind of trundle along, as I say. So I spent my childhood being unable to walk properly. I'm quite used to people calling me horrible names. I don't really, I mean, up to them, really. That's their problem. And if mm. people don't want to talk to me, if people want to block me, people don't want to be my friend, that's that's their prerogative. Mm. I have a small, a, a small group of actually very, very politically, religiously, everything, different countries, different uh, professions with whose opinions I really, really trust. If they say to me, oh, Katie, um, what you've said has flaws, I will really listen. But if some random person on Twitter comes to me and goes, you're, um, you've made a bad take and you're a white supremacist or something, I'm just like, yeah, whatever, or you're some kind of liberal shill and you're trying to drive drive us all into social justice wars i'm just like whatever mm. and i've had it from both sides i've had it from both the left and the right um possibly because i don't really uh toe the line with anyone <laughs> but um just have to kind of i suppose ride it out and think if anyone does that it says a lot about them it doesn't – if they don't engage with my argument, it actually says very little about me at all. Katie, I wish you all the, the greatest success in your mission to uh, to deactivize the, the academy. Um, Thank you so we'll much. We'll check in in five years and see whether or not we've been able mm. to, to, to pull off the purse. See, see if I've been cancelled or exactly, not. Exactly, that's yeah. right. Um, thanks so much for your time. It's lovely to talk to you. Lovely to talk to you too, Josh. Thank you so much. Thank you.